This is Farah, and you're listening to the Beef for Bacchus podcast, where we talk about wine stories from the Levant, Eastern Mediterranean, and the Caucasus. Today, we're going to talk about the Temple of Bacchus in Baalbek. The city, which is on the northeast end of the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, is home to meat pies known as Fiha, the Palmyra Hotel, and a cluster of really, really old Roman temples. Historically, it was a Phoenician city, known as Heliopolis, or the City of the Sun, during the Hellenistic period. A triad was worshipped there, Jupiter, Venus, and Mercury. And of the imperial Roman complex of temples found in Baalbek, the one that most people know and photograph is the one dedicated to Bacchus, or Bacchus in Arabic. Bacchus is the Roman god of wine, also known as Dionysus in Greek mythology. His temple in Baalbek is one of the oldest and best-preserved temples in antiquity. All of this felt like more than a good reason to dedicate an entire episode to the subject. The guest today that is going to be walking us through the history of it all is Alia Feris. She's a German-Lebanese archaeologist here in Beirut. She was previously interviewed on another podcast I co-host, A Better Beirut, that episode is about her work with the Lebanon Mountain Trail. So if you're into ecotourism, check out A Better Beirut, episode 15. Now, before we kick off with Alia, I have to give some background because there is a lot to go over here. First, I want to try to explain the layout so you can situate yourself. Imagine a rectangle. That represents the citadel's walls that enclose the complex. The current entrance into the rectangle is from the short side on the left. You climb a stone staircase that's got granite columns on either side. This is the propylaea. As you walk across the propylaea, you enter a hexagonal forecourt, and then you walk into the main great court. If your back is to the propylaea, you're now facing the podium that leads to what was the Temple of Jupiter. If you climb up those steps, you can see the six remaining columns. There used to be 54 of those that would surround the cella, or the interior chamber of the temple. If you look beyond those six columns, you see the insane Temple of Bacchus. Now, I say insane because it's in fantastic shape in comparison to its older brother, the Temple of Jupiter. While you're standing there, please take a look at a person walking below, if there is one, just to get an idea of how huge this temple actually is. Now turn around and look at the great court. If you walk down and head over to the Temple of Bacchus, make sure to explore, look at all the tiny details across the walls, across the gateway, across the steps, on the roof, and make sure to walk through the museum before you leave. Behind this rectangle is Bustan al-Khan and Bustan al-Sif, which were where the baths and marketplace once were. So do we kind of know where we are? We kind of have the lay of the land? All right. The history of this place is extremely convoluted. It involves many empires and emperors and civilizations and earthquakes, one building on top of another. It was dedicated to pagan Phoenician gods, to Roman gods, to the one god, and was even transformed into a fortress at one point. We're not 100% sure of exactly how old all of it is, as the city itself boasts 10,000 years of continuous settlement. But the Temple of Bacchus was built after the Temple of Jupiter, and the general consensus seems to be that it was built in the 2nd century AD. So it's at least 2,000 years old, and it took about 200 years to build. 
excavation of the site itself began in the late 1800s, thanks to the German Emperor Wilhelm II. But a few other things happened after that. Lebanon was a French mandate, and then it was a country, and then it had an ugly civil war in the 70s that lasted about 15 years. Work started again in the 90s and still continues till this day. It's still a site under excavation and restoration. Like the pyramids of Giza, the stones used to build the complex and its walls were massive, and we're still stumped as to how they were moved back in the day. The podium, or the base that the temples were built upon, is built with some of the largest stone blocks ever cut. There are three on the west side of the podium of the Temple of Jupiter, known as the Trilithon. Each stone weighs about 800 tons. Now, if we're going to talk about more recent times, in 1956, the Baalbek International Festival began. This was a festival that brought together artists and composers and operas and performances. This all happened within the Temple of Bacchus. International major acts, along with Lebanese folklore performances, occurred, making Lebanon the stage where East and West were joined together. In 1984, the complex was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Basically, this place is really important, historically, culturally, and it's a huge piece of evidence that Lebanon played a big role when it comes to the history of wine. So, want to talk temples? Let's do it. My name is Alia, and I'm an archaeologist and a building historian and a tour guide who works at AB. I teach as a part-time instructor, history of architecture. And so being an archaeologist in Lebanon was an amazing coincidence because my interest basically is on Roman architecture. This is what my specialty is. And so I have been given the, the possibility of working in a site like the temples of Baalbek, or the temples of Heliopolis, the Greek version of the name of the city. So get being given this chance for every archaeologist, this is a dream uh, site because of its, all of its characteristics that it has especially related to the Temple of Bacchus and the Temple of Jupiter, this neighboring colossal building. So this is basically me, and I'm very happy to be able today to talk about uh, one of the jewels of archaeology in Lebanon. Is, um, is work still happening there? Like, is it still being excavated? Is it still being studied? So what happened, would you like me to give you a whole historical yeah, overview? Sure. The research history, we call it Forschungsgeschichte, it's a German term which makes, I, I use the German term on purpose because the German Archaeological Institute is the mother and the father of the entire history of archaeological research in Malbach. From the very beginning until the end of the Ottoman Empire. So we're talking about the year 19, 18, 1898 with the arrival of Emperor William II up until 1917. Let's say all the way up until 1920 when 
this region, previously under Ottoman Empire, allies of the German-Prussian Empire, collapsed. And as a result, the whole region lost, was lost to the French-British allies. And Palbat was one of those sites, just like Palmyra in Syria, just like Jeraza in Jordan, just like Petra in Jordan, these historically incredibly um, rich sites that offered so much information about the history of the Roman Empire because of their architectural uh, heritage. Baalbek was one of those sites that the Germans completely put all their interest in. Ephesus in, in Turkey is another example. Bergama or Troy is another example. Uh, Crete, the island of Crete with, with palaces of the Mycenaean civilization, all of that was part of German research heritage. Why would they be interested in this part of the world? Like I understand Italy coming and renovating a Roman heritage in other countries, but what made it interesting for Germany? The Germans had been way ahead of other European countries in studying the classical uh, books. Classical books, we're talking about, starting with the Renaissance, we're talking about the translation of, of from Latin and Greek into the German language or into French uh, as well, of Homer and the great his, historians of the Greco-Roman world, Thucydides, uh, Herodotus, uh, Plinius, Josephus, uh, Strabo, these are all Greek-Roman historians which wrote books about these civilizations, these cultures. And so the Germans, with the rise of all these very highly intellectual universities, such as Heidelberg, Tübingen, Munich, uh, way before Berlin had become a center of, of intellectual power, these cities, uh, these universities, uh, who previously were being controlled by monasteries, monasteries had all the libraries in them, now with the Renaissance and the Baroque and the Rococo period, intellectuals begin to be dispersed all over Europe and they start traveling. By the 17th and the 18th century, you start reading historical texts about different ancient civilizations that left a trace somewhere in the world, whether it's in North America, and in South America, in Latin America, Central America, or uh, in the Middle East, or even in Central Asia with the so-called Chimerian Scythian civilization. These ancient historians were being translated and read by those intellectuals, and those intellectuals became extremely curious and wanted to go and discover them. And so the Brits, and the Germans were basically more or less competing over the sites that are located in the Middle East, in Turkey, and in Greece. Whereas the like French they claim over them. Well, it's similar to what happened in the United States in the 18th century when you would take a pole, you'd run across a field, and you would stick it into the ground and say, "This is mine." Not very different to that, depending on the political situation, because archaeologists 100 years ago were diplomats. Uh, T.E. Lawrence, who was a famous uh, British officer, was an archaeologist. So they basically played a political role 
and uh, trying to take over those sites and see what they can remove, what they can extract from those sites in order to fill up all their museums with private or private collections, private collectors. So Elgin, uh, the Elgin marbles, the very famous Elgin marbles, which are the frieze and the um, reliefs of the uh, uh, Parthenon in Acro on the Acropolis in Athens, were taken to the British Museum under the command of a businessman who basically uh, paid off the transportation, paid the Ottomans at the time who had taken over Greece, uh, Athens, and um, we're talking about the beginning of the 19th century, and took all the marbles or the reliefs which are now in the British Museum, which are the jewels of the British Museum, and the Greeks are now really, you know, suing the Brits, Brits so that they would get them back. Baalbek is not very different in that case. I want to zoom in back yeah. to our topic. So all this European interest, by the way, French were interested in Egypt, and that is why our National Museum in Lebanon has a French Art Deco uh, Egyptian uh, uh, feeling to it. The columns have lotus bud uh, capitals on top because the French architects and researchers at the time were influenced a lot by Egyptian architecture. And so the French focused on Egypt where, and that's why you have so many Egyptian pieces in the Louvre. I just want to jump in here and say that you should check out an episode by Kernan Cultures called Collateral Damage, and that talks about the story behind the National Museum of Beirut. It's super interesting. Also, I apologize for the sound quality in this bit, but there was a really loud person at the cafe, and I didn't realize how loud he was until I started editing. So I tried my best to clean it up. Sorry. And so the British Museum, the Louvre, and the third uh, most important museum in the world is the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. When you see the Germans, the French, and the Brits, they were basically the ones who started with this colonial mentality to take whatever they discovered from the... Souvenirs. Souvenirs, exactly. <laughs> Big souvenirs. Yeah. Colossal souvenirs. And so when it come, came to Baalbek, Emperor William found the site. He was so interested in history and, and, and the arts that when he saw specifically the Temple of Bacchus, he said that he had never seen any uh, temple, any structure with so much wealth in decoration, in architectural articulation and decoration. Today, I, uh, I was trying to tell a professor, colleague of mine, how to describe the facade of a temple, and sometimes, not just a temple, uh, many buildings, it's like a piece of jewelry that you put on the neck of a woman. If you look at a woman, they all look the same. The minute you put that piece of jewelry, that piece of art on her neck, something changes. Mm. And this is what Bachus is all about. It's a regular temple, like many other temples around the world, but what differs it are those architectural jewels that decorated the whole building from from all its from four sides can we break down some of them because of i've course. heard so many different um, accounts of what's on the gate and what's on the you know the details that are etched into the banisters of the staircase yeah. and then the the stories that are on the ceilings there's so many different facets of 
what makes up this temple, and every guide has a different version. Mm -hmm. If you want to understand the whole architecture of this building, we have to understand just a little bit where does it come from. Right. The history of Greco-Roman architecture started in the 5th century BC, when the very first temples in the form of Bacchus, in the form of Jupiter, in the form of the temples of Pergamon were created. And the initial architects, and at the time they would be called mechanicon, which is a, a term meaning somebody who is a mechanic in the sense that he is well acquainted with the arts of mathematics, with the arts of geometry, okay. with the arts of... He's not an architect so, as like we an know engineer. it today. Exactly, an engineer. Yeah. Voilà. So at the time, in the 5th century BC, the first architects uh, were commissioned by politicians to build public buildings. And when I say public buildings, I mean public buildings as a building that is dedicated to a certain uh, a religious figure which is being worshipped by an entire culture. And in the 5th century BC, on the Acropolis, who was the most important goddess? Athena Promachos. Athena was the protective patron goddess of Athens. And so when those first temples were constructed, the, the shape, the form, the symmetry, the proportions, the organized planning of each and every section of that building from the base, from the so-called foundation blocks, to the podium on top, to the columns that basically surround the central hall that is known as the cella, to the pediment, the entablature on top, and the, the last pieces which come on the very top of the building, on the roof, which are the acrotariums, the little statues that are on yeah. the pointed edges. All of that, from bottom to top, was designed to become the prototype for thousands and thousands of buildings that were going to be constructed until the 4th century AD, when Christianity took over, and we'll talk about this later. But, so, we're talking about a typology, a temple uh, form, which influenced the entire Mediterranean all of Germania, all of Central Europe, all the way to England, all of Spain, all of uh, the Middle East, all the way up until Central Asia, we have examples of these temples being constructed continuously because of the widespread influence of Greco-Roman architecture. Today, when we look at cell phones, what is the cell phone that everybody loves to hold in their hands? The iPhone. Thank you. you. You had uh, the answer straight out of your head. And how long did it take for the iPhone to become a, uh, an icon of, of a smartphone? Ten years? Five years? A little less, yeah. Uh, seven, eight years? Something yeah. like that. How long did it take for Greco-Roman architecture to become the prototypes of worshipped uh, of uh, houses of gods? About 200, 300 years. <laughs> So I like to do this yeah. comparison between the two. So Trends. Voila, it's a trend, exactly. Yeah. It became a trend. It started in Greece, started spreading from Greece to central, to Turkey. Greece at the time included western part of Turkey today. And then it went down to Syria, 
spread uh, through um, even to Egypt and in the Roman period in Egypt you you start you know because of those previous uh, architectural masterpieces that existed already in, in Egypt the very first example uh, that is a, um, a let's say a temple monument a temple funerary funerary monument is the the temple of Hatshepsut in uh, in Egypt and and it's basically a series of columns columns that protrude out of the wall mm -hmm. with the main entrance in the center you go through that building and then but you start getting the feeling okay architecture is changing here why do we have all these columns mm -hmm. the same goes for Karnak uh, which is which has a series of pylons you go one step to the other and then you enter into a, a hall the hypostyle hall the very first hypostyle hall in history made up of 360 columns so you've got influences coming from different parts of the world and then being completely implemented into one perfect building using the so-called golden ratio on the mm -hmm. Acropolis in Athens and then from that golden ratio you start you know everybody starts copying copy so the Acropolis was like the blueprint yeah. for the temple of Bacchus and Jupiter in Baalbek let's say it was the stop. They've got the staircase that leads into the temple of Jupiter, and yeah. that's the propylaire because he was yeah. the more important god. Jupiter actually is the father yeah. of Bacchus. And so the beginning of the axial projection from the propylaea, from the entrance of the temple of Jupiter, starts with the huge staircase that's in the very back, which is right in front of the oval square, or semicircular square. And so you go up that stairs, and then you're already at the last step in front of the Temple of Jupiter, in the axis of the Temple of Jupiter. Bacchus has its own staircase, yeah. separated from each other. But the concept of a staircase in a temple is very, very important. Why? Because the very first temples, but not all of them, and there are different theories about that. It's one of the topics I'm working on right now is the podium on which the temple was built. If you have a podium, you have no access into the cella or into the pronaos, which is the area that's in front of the cella door, where you have a series of columns, you have a portico, you have like a corridor, then you enter into the actual house of the god. If you don't have a staircase, you cannot, how are you gonna go up the podium? You're gonna climb, you need something to take you in. Now, what's beautiful about Podia is that on either side of the staircase, you would have a nice, elegant balustrade, a porch, you know, where you can basically lean on it as you're going up. Uh, you have to imagine it in a smaller case. Yeah. It's like a regular staircase yeah. that has a rail. A rail, exactly. Yeah. In the temple of Bacchus, on one side of that porch, they constructed an entire Islamic Arab uh, tower. On the other side, they didn't build anything because you could see clearly the podium of the building. When you're walking, when you cross through the the area between Jupiter and Bacchus, you see the wall of the podium. You basically walk along it and then you go up the stairs in order to enter into the temple of Bacchus. And the podium is the most one of the most essential elements. It doesn't mean that all temples have it. It means that 
the more important the temple and the more the geographical, geological prerequisites are there, the more elegant and the more, let's say, um, elevated yeah. you can put your building on top it of was, the podium. Was it also that they want you to literally feel like you have to go up to meet this god? There is there's something Putting about them on another level. Basically. Yeah, it does have a, an effect. It ha definitely has an... Uh, a spiritual effect, uh, a religious effect on the viewer, on the visitor. But usually the regular people, that's the difference between a church and a temple. The regular visitor like you and myself are not allowed into the building. It's the priests, it's the emperor, it's the governor, it's the clergy, the pagan clergy who is allowed to go up the stairs and perform the ritual procession. All the sacrificial activity happens outside, according to an oriental tradition, which is building, which usually includes an altar, and there are two of them in Baalbak, right in front of the Temple of Jupiter, and at that altar, you basically do the sacrifice. Whereas inside the temple, you basically perform nothing except offerings. You just go up to the god and you say, thank you for everything and here's some food. And that's only that's accessible. Shrine. Yeah, to the monument, to the yeah. actual uh, statue that's right. inside. And now, in the case of the Acropolis, uh, Pericles, who was the governor of Athens at the time, was the political leader of Athens, he took a bad decision by putting all the treasury inside the temple. And then, when the Persians attacked, what happened? first thing is that they stole it. it, they looted it. And then some of it stayed around and then Pericles said, okay, we're going to rebuild the temple of Tina Promachos and we're going to use all the money oh, of the treasury know. remaining in order to build the statue. Mm. In the case of Jupiter, in case of Baalbak, we're talking about a site that was constructed over millennia was as a city that developed due to economic reasons and agricultural reasons. The Acropolis is a, is a completely different story because the Acropolis is on top of a hill and there's nothing going on around it. Everything is inside the city, way below. Whereas the Temple of Bacchus and the Temple of Jupiter and this entire religious precinct is completely, was completely surrounded by the uh, very connected, strongly connected to the agricultural activity of the city and at the same time um, to caravans that were crossing from Hummus and Halab uh, through Balbak, through the Bikar Valley, all the way to Damascus. And this had already started way before the construction of those temples in the Roman period, between the first century BC and the third century AD. So during those 400 years, life in Balbak had already been very fluid and flourishing, very, very active, very fertile. But that's what makes Baalbak so unique. Not just that because it was part of the city? Part on the of the city, but in like you say, say like in a suburb part of the city. Mm. But the main caravan station is the colonnaded street that's towards the uh, south, the so called Bustan al Khan area, which today, because you've asked me, is there work still happening there? Yes, there is still work happening there. And that area is waiting to be completely habilitated, rehabilitated for the public.
tourists are not allowed into Bassan Khan yet because it's not it has not been made accessible yet properly. Mm-hmm. You don't want tourists falling off the stairs or you know you're walking on mosaics and that's so strange because whenever you think of excavation and you think of um, archaeologists working you think that it happened 15 20 50 years before you're visiting mm-hmm. the site you don't think that it's still actively being dug up and you know so many people talk about archaeology like it's a profession that is done and no longer needed that's a uh, problem we whereas, don't have funding yeah there's no funding and so every year the German Archaeological Institute, BAE, Deutsch Archaeological Institute, that's their, uh, their acronym. Their acronym. Uh, they uh, have to apply for a grant so that they can fund the one, two, three months excavation period, which is led by just three, four, five archaeologists at the They can't afford more than that. And even now, with the Syrian crisis, we had some Syrian workers working in Baalbak, and the Germans needed to uh, explain that to the German uh, people, saying, yeah, we are using this excavation in order to help the Syrian crisis. So you see to what extent they have to explain themselves financially, because at the moment when somebody's dying just to hunger, justify getting some kind of funding exactly mm. if somebody's starving you don't take care of a stone you take care of the hungry mm. and i agree this is a very pragmatic view of the situation and i totally agree but and this is one of the reasons why sometimes big investors come and tell you no i'm not going to take care of the archaeology because i want to build houses for the people right it's not a priority it's yeah. not a priority becomes you know like a activity for wealthy patrons of the art voila. kind of thing okay so they can put their name on the plaque exactly yeah i mean i've always wondered why do we have a temple of bacchus like as a country not that i i mean obviously we have a huge role in the history of wine and the reference to dionysus and everything like i understand that but why did they decide to build this temple here and especially in a place where it's not on the port, it's not in the center of trade, it's very inland, it's it's kind of like off the route in yeah. a way. Like, Everybody asks the same question, you're not the first, and you're absolutely right to ask it, especially because the answer is not obvious in Baalbek itself. If you read all the info panels that are put all over the site, there are like 10 of them, they don't tell you, they explain the architecture, they explain yeah. the, the history, but they don't tell you why the at this yeah. And so to go back to what I just said earlier about a trade route that had developed way before the Romans and the Greeks had arrived, the local Canaanite civilization had already developed an agricultural center in Baalbek for two reasons. One, because in the Bika Valley, which is usually, which is a flat plain, Albaq, and that is not very obvious to the eye, is on a higher level, architecturally, um, geologically, is on a higher plateau. That's number one. Number two, the Bekaa Valley is very fertile, but you don't see any rivers, you don't see any water springs, except at the edges of the mountains. Like, for example, in Yamune. You go to Yamune, you have a water source dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite or Astarte or Ashtarut. Mm. 
in Mahalbak, we're talking about the same concept. Thousands of years ago, people flooded to Baalbak because of water. And so the caravans passing by needed to get to a water source. And it was so essential for their traveling, they stayed in Baalbak for a while. And so with time, not only did they stay, but they started worshipping, or they started developing um, religious activity around the water source. So the water source of Albaq is about 10-15 kilometers out of the city towards the northeast and the source is called Ainjuj. And from that water source, water goes down and arrives to a place called Ras Yeah. If you go on top of the temple of the hill of Sheikh Abdullah and you look towards the northeast, you will see a green pasture, a beautiful green area that is very fertile. That's because of the water that arrives to Raslain. What did the Romans do? They turned the water of Raslain into an aqueduct. There was a nice little lake and then they carved a nice aqueduct at that spot and right at that spot as well they built a temple for Aphrodite. And there's a, or today we call it the Temple of Venus. Yeah. Um, from that Temple of Venus, uh, the Shiite community built the um, uh, first mosque for, for Imam Hussein. There's another one at the entrance of the city dedicated to his so-called daughter, who we don't know if she really existed or not. But in any case, so from Raslain, the Romans controlled the water the channeling of the water and while you're walking from Rasnayan to Baalbak you will walk next to the water channel that the Romans had actually created and the Romans were incredibly powerful architects and engineers when it comes to water channeling around city around the, in order to have abundant water flowing to their uh, to their temples so this water goes gets to Baalbak to the archaeological site today first to the temple of Venus, and then it floods it. It fills up the entire area from Rasnaim towards the temples, passes through Venus, fills it up completely with water, creates an artificial lake, and there's an inscription under the temple of Venus that says the muses are going to protect the temple of Venus during the flood. The inscription still exists under the, in the wall, in the base of the temple of Venus, but um, you can't really see the Greek uh, letters anymore very clearly. So, so just to get back to your question, why do why did this all get constructed? The other, the second reason, other than water and the geological location of Albaq, the third reason is the fact that Romans were very interested in leaving an imprint of their presence. And we're not talking about just a military imprint. We're talking about an architectural imprint. We're talking about a, um, a cultural imprint, a, a religious imprint. And they succeeded in doing that by commissioning not just one emperor, but hundreds of them from the beginning of the, uh, let's say, the end of the first century BC. Uh, before Christ, all the way up until the uh, 295 AD when the last uh, pagan work was done 
in Bangkok. And so there was no other site. There are many temples there, including Niha, yeah. including Aksar Naba, including uh, Majd al Anjad, which are in the Bekaa Valley. But Baalbak was the mother, was the, God, was the uh, most important uh, cult location in the entire valley. But everything goes back to agriculture, everything goes back to natural phenomena. The sunrise, the sunset, the moon, the changing of the seasons, the harvest, the spring, uh, you know, everything goes back to those natural phenomena. But the Romans, in comparison to the Greeks, were much more prag pragmatic. So they would build a temple for a god, thanking him for the harvest or for the springtime. But at the same time, they kept, you know, separating their own activity from the gods, which the Greeks did not really achieve. The Greeks, you know, lived from oracles. The Greeks basically um, assumed that uh, some crazy priestess on, inside a cave is going to tell them what the war how the how specific war is going to end up. The Romans were much more realistic in that sense. So they'd build a temple for the god that they worship, they do the ritual, it'll be like a big festival. Like mm. today you go to a rave circus, you go to watch a festival, but it's dedicated to a god so that the gods are satisfied and then you do your business on the side. So Baalbek was a prime location for water thanks to the nearby springs like Rasalaina the Jush. If you take the word Baalbek and you break it down, it translates to Lord the Source in Aramaic, Baal being the supreme god and Nebek being source. Baal was the top dog in the Aramean gods, Aramean being an ancient Semitic Aramaic-speaking tribe that were around in the 11th to 8th centuries BC in the area that is now modern-day Syria. He's the same god as Hadad or Haddad, the weather and fertility god of Canaanite and Mesopotamian religions. He gave us rain, thunder, lightning. Sounds like Zeus, right? Or Jupiter. Whatever name you want to use, by controlling such things, he controls agriculture and life by extension. From ages ago, before the Romans and the Greeks, the importance of Baalbek as a location was always about the water. The, the whole thing is incredibly impressive. Like even now, I've been multiple times, but every time I go, it's still overwhelming. The, Tell me, I've the been for like it. five million times, yeah, and the, I the never scale get enough of it. Of it. The, the, I never get enough. How impressive of it. it is as a structure, like the entire space, not just the Temple of Bacchus, but the Temple of Bacchus in particular is also so impressive because it's so preserved and it's so yeah. intact, yeah. and it's. I can only imagine what the Temple of Jupiter would have been like had it still had all of its columns. Fifty-four of them. Just the six, and you can't even imagine the rest. how massive that might have been. Like you can stand on the base of the columns and just think. And the Temple of Jupiter, according to one inscription, by 60 A.D., under the reign of Emperor Nero, it was already completely constructed. So, Bacchus came later. So Jupiter was already there, you know. So there are three. Guinness Book Records in Baalbek, you know that. Three? One is the largest carved stone in the world, the quarry mm -hmm. block that's still in the ground. The second is the highest Roman temple in the world with the six columns of Jupiter. And third, the best preserved Roman temple in the world, which is Bacchus. So like, 
I don't know what the Romans were thinking when they built that. Yeah, there's there's so many it's facets. Insane. And then it's also multi-layered. Yeah. Because you have different civilizations building on top of each other, which is kind of the story well, of Lebanon exactly. uh, as a whole. Uh, but there's also this myth, I guess, or theory as to whether or not the Temple of Bacchus is actually the Temple of Bacchus. Well. So why is that disputed and what are, what are the, what's the evidence that it is in fact the Temple of Bacchus? So there are two theories related to the um, God to whom the building was constructed, dedicated to. And of course, the inscriptions are not available anymore. We're talking about the stone carved inscriptions, the reliefs. We have lots of them found inside the great altar in front of Jupiter that talk about different legions passing by, different god, the priests, different local governors, you know, claiming to have commissioned one part of the uh, construction site or another. You have names of the Roman emperors that are being mentioned, Caracalla, Nero, Trajan, uh, Augustus. Um, uh, Philippus the Arab, you know, these are Roman emperors who had reigned from Rome, but who saw Malbec as such an important political and military base for them, and that's why they were present. But Bacchus, voila, geographically, yeah. for them to be able to contract, uh, control the whole Coele uh, Syria, which is the Roman province, uh, that was the name of the region at the time. Mm. Lebanon was not a separate entity. Right. It was part of Syria at the time. And it stayed until 1917, until the Ottomans uh, you know, fell apart, were, were gone. Uh, and so the construction of Bacchus is linked to two different gods in a way, although we have no inscription whatsoever that tells you that it was built for this or that god, unfortunately. The lack of inscriptions makes it a debate. The lack of any historical evidence, whether written on a wall or written on a papyrus roll, doesn't exist. So the architects ended up, already a hundred years ago, they were saying the Temple of Bacchus was dedicated to Jupiter. Now that is a very fatal mistake because we have proof that the Temple of Jupiter is dedicated to mm. Jupiter because okay. of the so-called Jupiter Heliopolitanus triad. The triad is basically um, like we consider today the in the Christian uh, faith they consider the triad basically God, the, the Son, the God and the Holy Spirit. The same uh, was true for the triad in Balba, Venus, Jupiter, and Mercury. Bacchus is not one of those three major gods which reigned. Jupiter was the god of the gods. He's like Zeus in the Greek world, but his actual name is Jupiter because it was built in the Roman period. Mercury was the, was the god of the thieves, god of trade, god of merchants, god of uh, tricks. Um, the third god, Venus, who was the goddess of fertility, had already her temple, the circular one known as the uh, Rotunda mm -hmm. or the Tholos, 
was built out of the axis of, not in the axis of Jupiter, not in the axis of, of the so-called temple of Bacchus. So what to do with Bacchus? How, if, if Jupiter already has his temple, uh, Venus already has her temple, who was this temple dedicated to? Mm -hmm. So there are, architecturally, the next step, if you don't have any inscriptions, is to look at the architecture and see how you can understand, decipher it, decipher it and see if it's linked to one of those gods. And indeed, there is a debate because in the Temple of Bacchus we have evidence for architectural features that look very Dionysian or Bacchian-like and architectural features which look very Mercury-like. The Mercury theory is based on the portal at the entrance of the temple below the Sofit, under Sofit, which is the relief relief that you see once you enter into the building right under the entrance right under the pediment or the, the lintel you will see an eagle whose hand who's holding in his claws uh, a scepter a key and on either side are two uh, winged arrows to flying goddesses, babe, infant goddesses, and there's a garland connecting them. And this garland is full of natural features, uh, uh, flowers, leaves, grapes, uh, apples, you name it, pine, pine cones, all decorating this beautiful garland that's connecting the eros with uh, the eagle. This entire iconography is very much linked and is the main symbol of Mercury, who usually flies through the skies and protects the merchants and the uh, uh, traders and the thieves and whoever. So basically the archaeologists looked at that and said, okay, this temple obviously is dedicated to Mercury. But then again, on top of the hill of Sheikh Abdullah was a temple who has absolutely no doubt a proof of its dedication to Mercury because of a coin. So there's a coin which was discovered on the one temple, coin. one single coin. And this coin, uh, I, there are more of it, but the first one that was discovered basically proved that this temple is dedicated to Mercury because of its uh, 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 iconography, because of what, 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 okay. what's on it. On the one hand, you have the eagle again being portrayed on it. On the other side of the coin, you have the image of a temple, it's a bronze coin, the image of the temple with a carved, curved staircase leading to the temple and then there are four columns and the pediment on top. Mm. On that little coin and this exact staircase and the shape of it, which is a curved chip, completely coincides with the staircase, the shape of the staircase that leads up to the temple of Mercury on top of the mountain, on top okay. of the hill. So there was no doubt that this, this Mercury has his temple on top of Sheikh Abdullah. And archaeologists and architects have made already several analyses to connect the three buildings, Jupiter, Venus, and Mercury. You create a sort of triangular mm. connection between the three. And they're very, let's say, logical and very, uh, architecturally speaking, they make sense. Okay. And so that's why... So before they discovered the coins and they were assuming that 
Temple of Bacchus was the Temple of Mercury? But they had already assumed the second theory about the Temple of Bach being dedicated to Bacchus because of the other iconography that's inside the building. Okay. This incredible rich architectural decoration, it feels almost Baroque-like, you know, with this immense amount of acanthus leaves that you see everywhere, the very rich Corinthian capitals that are all over the place from the colonnades that are outside to the pilasters that are inside that completely decorate the upper levels to the niches that where you used to have all these statues and of course the most important aspect when you look at the aditon or the spot where you would have had the statue you have a staircase that leads to the top and left and right of that staircase you have a half a podium from one side and half a podium from the other side and on the facade of that podium you have a series of figures, figurines, women dressed very elegantly, uh, holding wine, grapes, uh, wine leaves in their hands and grapes, and then moving in a procession towards the center. And they're slightly tipsy. You can see from their movement <laughs> that they're not totally you know, awake. They're a little bit under a sense of an ecstatic feeling. This is a very strong link to Bacchus. Okay. And all the wine uh, um, indices are clear indicators that this temple is dedicated to Bacchus. But then again, keep it. You never know. You never know. <laughs> exactly. You look at the ornamentation on the portal yeah. and you will see so many natural aspects in it, so many natural elements. Mm wine leaves, pine cones, grapes, uh, flowers, acanthus leaves, um, and it spreads as a frame around the entrance. And because of its wealth and richness, the, the intensity of it, it looks like as if Bacchus is somewhere around, but he's not in it. And you even <laughs> see, actually, you even see little Venus, uh, yeah. uh, little women also, you know, yeah. ascending upwards. And, on both sides and on the top. So there's so much, well, I mean, you look at that portrait and you realize this is where Baroque basically got its entire inspiration from. It's so rich and so elegant and so, you know, it kind of takes your breath away yeah. because of the amount of detail and all carved out of stone. This is what's amazing. But then again, you have to think about the different workshops and the ateliers who worked. You have to imagine Baalbek as a continuous construction site. Today, and I give this example always, when you're working on site, uh, you have a main architect, a main architectural firm, and a contractor and an investor. And from the very moment that the investor actually starts the project, everything has been planned for. From the smallest nail to the highest uh, roof top. Um, brick. Everything is planned for meticulously down to the slightest, smallest detail. Mm -hmm. The project in Malbak was not the case. From the first century BC, the original plan in the Hellenistic period was to build a huge monument, the Temple of Jupiter, and everything else came along as added layers. As added layers or they kept the axis. Jupiter remained the central figure in this entire endeavor, but every governor, every commander, every officer, every emperor 
took a new initiative. And Bacchus was probably built around the mid of the second century AD as the architectural decoration explains. Looking at the details of the capitals on top, it's one of the things that I'm working on right now. All the proportions of the capitals from the Aishinus and the Abacus, which are the two plates that are between the base and the top of the capital. So because the capital is standing on top of a shaft, on top of a column, but there's an initial contact between the pillar and the capital, and an initial contact between the capital and the architrave right above it. And so everything in between is basically in, in, as a Corinthian capital, one of the most elaborate capitals ever carved, just like those of the Temple of Jupiter. Jupiter is, by the way, three meters higher. And there's a theory, I don't know how true it is, they're going to publish it once the restoration is done. The restoration has been, the scaffolding has been removed by the Italian team, but we need to read the publication, the why did those six columns survive 2,000 years and all the others are gone? Yeah. Is there a clear stati uh, statical reason for that, uh, static reason for that? Yes, in comparison to Bajos, Jupiter was, uh, was just too large was three meters too large. Mm. And so they're comparing the sizes, you'll realize that the seven meter podium on which Jupiter stands is actually, it was the fatal reason for the complete So the height of it is why it didn't it, stand? It did not stand all those centuries. And wow. of course, earthquakes and then the Arabs, the Ayyubids especially, taking the whole temple down and raising its walls. That cella was completely raised down to the ground and they used all the blocks in order to build part of the citadel. I'm mentioning the citadel all around from starting the 8th, 9th century AD. First you had the Umayyads building Anjar and then completely ignoring Baalbek and considering it as a, you know, a pagan worth place of worship, which nobody wanted to be in. Mm. anymore, but it, it kept its agricultural importance, huh? its uh, commercial importance. It mm. always had a commercial importance, way before the temples were built and way after they were used. I wanted to touch on the social aspect of how it's almost forgotten or maybe like taken for granted that we have a site that this is that is this significant and significant in oh, size, but also historically. Yeah, totally to absolutely. But like even Palmyra, and even with the crisis, or let's say after the crisis, is getting now is getting more visitors than Alba. It's very sad. We're to blame for that. Do you think that people just they don't know the 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 level of what it is like it's not just um, underappreciation or like yeah we know our whole country is littered with sites it's not so much that that we like don't think much of it but maybe it's also that we aren't aware that this is actually so impressive on a global scale yeah you know like because you have a lot of people that haven't been to Athens or haven't been to yeah. all these other sites so they don't know to compare that, yeah especially that I when I get tourists who who've been to the Acropolis and then they go see the temple of Bacchus yeah. they're like okay 
Acropolis. Yeah, and you go, oh yeah, throw it down the, the garden. One, actually. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> so the, no, what? they see the. Well, the difference. I mean, why is the Acropolis so important? Because of democracy, of proto-democracy that was invented by the Greeks during that period. That's why the Acropolis is the center of European intellectual thought and the Indo-Aryan theories of the Nazi regime all were inspired, you know, by the creation of the, mm. of the intellectual mind that developed in Greece. And so the Acropolis is a symbol for that, of that, and the creation of the Golden Ratio. It all started there. It all started there. Mm. And we have to be thankful to the Greeks. But at the same time, I mean, the Romans wanted to be as Greek as possible. Mm -hmm. They did such a huge effort to say, look at us, we love the Greeks, we are, in a way, they used to study, in, I mean, the kids of all the wealthy families would learn Latin, of course, which was the language, but at the same time, they learned Greek. Today, which school offers Greek in Lebanon? Tell me. Yeah. To be able to connect to those cultures. But then again, I don't have to, uh, I, I, shouldn't, I should not ignore what the Arabs did by the 10th, 11th century and then with the creation of the city of Baghdad and uh, schools of thought that developed. But it's too much history, <laughs> just an hour yeah, or yeah. two. I'm not going to go down all Did those roads. Um, so to talk about wine, the Romans were very fond of orgies, and we all we know that. <laughs> I'm not telling you anything new. But you have to think that by the seventh century, with the rise of Islam, the whole concept of a metaphysical experience that you go through when you smoke or when you drink was being abolished for political reasons, for sociological reasons. On a Christian level. Wine became part of the ritual, just like it was part of the ritual in the pagan world. But by the 7th century AD, Khmer, the Christians also, took uh, various decisions uh, under the so-called iconoclastic movement. I don't know if you're familiar with that. There's a, part, there's a period of about 100 years where um, alcohol and the drawing of figures was forbidden, what actually Islam basically promoted. And so the Christian iconoclast and then the Islamic invasion turned wine into a prohibited mm. uh, element and a prohibited drink. Now, if you remember, in the 1930s, if you know about the American prohibition, prohibition the counter-reaction to it was an addition, uh, even a yeah. higher increase in alcohol consumption. Like most uh, things, voila. as soon as you try to prohibit it, it, yeah, it, it's, it goes like wildfire. Exactly, and that's what happened when it was prohibited by the 7th century AD, the 8th century AD. And then so the Arabs, or the Islamic invasion, started kind of, you know, ignoring it a bit, allowing the Christians in their in their uh, areas <laughs> to drink but not doing it themselves and then mm. 
And for Bachus, is a is a temple, if, or let's say, not the temple, if we want to talk about the cult of Dionysos, uh, cult of Bachus, was a very popular cult just because it is linked to this metaphysical effect that it creates and the, the need to, to, to uh, experience it. He's not a god that only existed in Malbach. He's all over the Roman world. You go to, you go to Morocco, you'll find temples that were dedicated to him from the Roman period. You go to Spain, you go to, uh, to um, uh, Tunisia, you go to um, all of Greece, all of Turkey, all of Syria. There were temples dedicated to Bacchus. So he was not just a, an yeah. important god. He was very popular. What do you think is something that people don't know? Like some interesting little like fun facts or nuggets that they don't realize when they visit the site or they don't know when people talk about oh, Baalbak. Well, like not just the temples but the place. When everybody asks this question that you asked earlier about um, why there? Why are there? Once you actually understand the topography of the city from the Roman period, you will understand why those temples were there. Well, other than the fact that they're way too large for the whole area in comparison to the other 120 Roman temples that are built all over the cult site, that are built all over Lebanon, the, um, the borders of the city, the frontiers of the city, and the urban fabric of Albaq during the Roman period is, people don't have access to that. You can't ask the, the local inhabitants to, mm. you know, leave the house and coming to see your house. You can't, of course, you can't do that. But there is a, 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 a there's a physical presence of the city borders. They exist still. You can walk around the city and, and look for them. In Hayy Salah, in one area, uh, there's also a series of caves, underground caves and catacombs and tunnels, which were built. I'm gonna have to take over here because the audio just got way too jumbled up with all the noise. So Alia mentions the catacombs, the Christian neighborhood that has homes that are 150 years old, the library at the home of the poet Khalil Mutran, the Turkish school's fountain, and Ajami, a restaurant that funded the Baalbek festival before 1975, and apparently they have the best ablamauras. If you live in Lebanon and you haven't been to Baalbek, you must go. And if you've been, but only during the summer festival, that doesn't count. Go on a regular day when nothing else is happening and take it all in. Walk through the grounds, look at the grapevines and poppies lining the gateway to the Temple of Bacchus, the ladies dancing with amphora on the staircase banisters inside, go eat lunch in the souks, walk the streets, talk to the people. See the living city today. And for my listeners abroad, if you're ever planning on visiting Lebanon, make it a point to dedicate one day for a road trip to the city. It won't cost much more than time, and considering how long it's been there, it's worth that small sacrifice. They've been waiting for you for a lot longer. Thank you for listening to this long episode. I hope it was enlightening, and I hope you learned a little bit about the ancient city and the Temple of Bacchus. If you have any feedback or anything you want to let me know, shoot me an email at info at beforbacchus.com. That's info at beforbacchus.com. B-F-O-R-B-A-C-C-H-U-S.
Please rate and review the podcast. It really helps to get discovered by new listeners, and I really want more people to know about the wine stories of this region. That's it for me, guys. This is Farah signing off for the Beef for Bacchus podcast. Mm-hmm.